Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John, and a quick PSA regarding my new virtual men's group that meets on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pacific time. There's only a few spots left, but I thought you might want to know about it. It's a quick, easy, and cheap way to work with me. And maybe some of you have a career. Maybe you've made some money. Maybe you have a reputation for yourself at work. But maybe what you lack is things like happiness or purpose, a fulfilling relationship or a healthy sex life, the passion, happiness, and ease that you once had with your spouse, an emotion other than numbness, disconnection, or irritability. This group is for men who are trying to be values-driven, interested in lifelong learning, and curious about how to become the best possible versions of themselves. The group is not for men who want to remain in the comfort zone while sitting at home watching TV. So again, group meets weekly, Wednesday, 7 p.m. It's only $95 per session, and you can call 510-863. 0057 for more details. That's 510-863-0057. And now on with the show. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. John back with yet another episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. And I got to say, I am pretty psyched today to have with me Dr. Mike Rucker. Mike is an organizational psychologist, a behavioral scientist, a pretty smart guy and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. He's been published in publications like the International Journal of Workplace (laughs) Workplace (laughs) Health Management. Wow, that's a mouthful. His ideas about fun and health have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Forbes, and many more. He currently serves as a senior leader at Active Wellness and is the author of the book, The Fun Habit which is out right now and available at Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, and most airports across the country. (laughs) Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here too. Yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to have you here. The first interview or the first conversation that we had was such a kick in the pants. I really Uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me your story. How did you come to the point of writing this book, The Fun Habit? It's not a normal like research topic. Yeah. So as you gave a nod, I've been studying positive psychology for quite some time. The IPPA came forth around 2005, 2006. And for folks that don't know what positive psychology is, it's essentially an offshoot of traditional clinical psychology that wanted to look at psychological tools for betterment rather than, you know, using, you know, up until that point, it had been primarily used to treat, you know, cognitive deficits and, you know, yeah. poor mental hygiene it, and things. Psychology traditionally has looked at how we're broken. Positive Correct. psych looks at how can we become better? Yeah, it's more eloquently said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm trying to, you know, make it digestible, I suppose. Yeah, fair enough. And so I'd really, um, you know, being a zealot of that space, I had yeah. used all those tools um, quite effectively, to be quite honest, for a long time. And also, uh, when I was studying that work, I, w- I lived in San Francisco with my wife and really got in bed with the quantified self movement too. Gary Wolf, and you know, for folks in the Bay Area, might be familiar with that. And so, not only was I using these psychological principles, but was like over quantifying, you know, trying to find correlations in my day and 
really being too concerned with my own happiness, but in that period, didn't realize that that could be problematic. And so the short version of the story is um, in 2016, my younger brother passed away. So I had had this good, good stretch, right. Of, you know, using things like gratitude and mindfulness and, you know, all these kind of biohacky things, you know, to kind of over-optimize and was just like in my lane. Right. Um, but didn't have very, you know, and I can say this in the rear view mirror, it's kind of, you know, giving away the plot, but I, I had really poor emotional flexibility because mm-hmm. I had been on a high for so long. And so not only did my younger brother pass away that year, but after being an avid endurance athlete, found out that I had likely an undiagnosed injury, you know, or it could be osteoarthritis. Well, it certainly was osteoarthritis, but likely because of an undiagnosed injury. And I was going to need a hip replacement, which meant... Mm-hmm at the age of 44. And when you get them that young, you're essentially told not to run again because uh. you know, the, these mechanical parts have a shelf life, you know, so you usually get them in your sixties and you're fine. But you know, at 45 with a 20 year, 25 year shelf life, they don't want you to come in for your vision because you know, um, it tends to have a lot worse outcomes. So, um, cycling and swimming, but you know, running, which had been, the way I mitigated stress, you know, definitely a part of my identity was essentially taken away. And so I tried to use these same tools that had propped me up for so long, you know, essentially, you know, good vibes only and all this BS. And so are toxic positivity is that kind that's of where about right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, now we have a word for it, right? Back then, yeah. you know, it was still uh, inspiration porn or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that phrase. Yeah. Sounds and, like Instagram. Uh, now we know, actually, in your backyard, the researcher I like the, the best in this area, Dr. Iris Mouse, is out of University of California, Berkeley. Um, her and others were looking at this phenomenon, I guess, serendipitously around the same time, that this Western ideal, this so not necessarily valuing happiness, but being overly concerned with it to this, mm-hmm. you know, the extent that you're chasing it, you know, you're ruminating on the fact that, you know, why. Um, even in inappropriate times, like the loss of a loved one, you know, um, you're kind of thinking about how do I get out of this, you know, instead of unpacking the emotional density in the moment that it's sort of like cognitive behavioral therapy in, in reverse, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, you can draw a straight line to clinical outcomes. And that's where I found myself, you know, like that rumination and that, you know, just, I can will myself out of this, you know, th- this yeah. state that I'm in, um, you know, I was budding up. The, you know, the gray area of a, a diagnosis, clinical diagnosis. And so of, of potentially, depression. yeah, I mean, I, you know, I might've even dipped into there, you know? Well, and I mean, you're grieving at this time too, right? I mean, you're grieving on a couple levels. You lost your brother and then you also lost part of your identity with the hip replacement. That's right. And like, it's a double whammy on the identity. So certainly the loss of a loved one, and then uh, that's my only brother. So, you know, now I'm an only child, right? You go from, you know, us being this dynamic duo because our parents are complex, you know, like they're both professors at UC Davis. So there's, so they're kind know, of smart too. Yeah. But they're also, you know, <laughs> esoteric and there's a, you know, I love them to death, but it's nice that, you know, and to have someone in, who gets you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, you know, poke fun at it. And I, I deal with, a, you know, now mm-hmm. that I've lost running, most of the way I mitigate anxiety is through humor. <laughs> so, and my brother was really good at that. Um, and uh, anyway, so I was like, okay, you know, I was smart enough. I, I feel like I've always been able to be meta enough to understand I'm heading in the wrong direction. You know, I, I so pardon me, but let me pause yeah, you there. Please. Explain that idea of meta 
to the listeners? Because that's a really important concept. Yeah, where you can step outside of yourself and understand the direction that you know you're able to step into the role of observer and go, whoa, I think my actions here might be problematic. I might not necessarily know why, but I can't stay in this space. Yeah, because um, it, it, it's a critical skill for self-awareness and changing your own behavior and reducing the intensity of negative emotions or uncomfortable emotions. I mean, it's it's a big deal for those of you that aren't familiar with it. Yeah. Cognition, meta-emotion. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, because I had... I certainly um, have had issues where I've had need to unpack that. And so... Um, to the degree, whether it was developed or inherent, I don't know, but I, I knew something was wrong. And so being an academic, you know, I, luckily enough, I was introduced to Dr. Mouse's work, um, which suggests that, again, the, that this real problem was brewing in the U.S., this idea that chasing happiness, you know, could really lead to you paradoxically being unhappy. And so that's great, that insight, right? We get these insights, but when the, there's not much action you can take from it, you kind of need to carve your path, right? And that's that was the beginning of what's now the fun habit. Like, okay, if the activity of evaluation, which is essentially the way we look at happiness now, you know, especially in the Western world, like, okay, are you happy? You need to stop, get out of the moment, evaluate your circumstance, you know, it becomes... Which destroys the, happiness when you... Yeah, exactly, it. right? <laughs> yeah. It just goes poof. Yeah. So um, I think what I really did, I can say this more saliently now because I've answered it. I don't know that I knew it at the launch of the book, but I think where I really was able to lean on is my academic background is in workplace wellness and the construct of autonomy. We, we know through tons of research that a high level of autonomy correlates quite highly with both psychological and physiological um, positive outcomes, right? And I imagine and, workplace satisfaction as well. Yeah, all of the above. I mean, okay. you, know, you, you know, it's grounded in social determination theory, but yeah. again, most people understand the construct of Is autonomy. That DC? Yeah, DC, yeah. yeah DC. And, um, and I only know that because of the Audible book. Oh, uh, okay. Saying. Yeah, because there's a lot of researchers. I'm like, I think that's how you pronounce it. It was so great. I mean, just a quick aside, but I, I <laughs> especially because I cited a lot of folks from Eastern Europe and Israel. And oh. like, I was so humbled how many people, like, if I hadn't met them, they just like, who is this idiot? Butcher you know? their name. Yeah. Uh, it's terrible. Um, I, now, now I'm like, how do you pronounce your name? Me or no, I'll ask oh, everyone yeah, like absolutely. when I meet them because I'm, yeah. I, yeah. I think you actually you gave me that courtesy, you know, because some people it's a German name and I would much rather be Rucker because you can imagine Rucker. having having a name like Rucker as a child, you know, it's an easy <laughs> Does something rhyme with that. Yeah, right. Get it. <laughs> There's a few things, you know, it <laughs> starts with S and ends with S, you know, depending on your, you know, level of your, uh, your age. Yeah. yeah what, that's right. what level of school you're in. Yeah. Um, so getting back to, you know, unpacking, okay, so this became problematic and I was made aware of it quickly. So what could I do different? And so I fell back on. So we've talked about how autonomy is so important in the workplace, but in the modern um, world that we live in, a lot of our autonomy has kind of been through social norm or whatever, uh, kind of taken away from us in our life outside of work. And 
And I think that certainly happens when we're prescribing to somebody else's ideal of happiness, which can happen when, you know, just haphazardly, you know, because of social media, because we all compare ourselves to our friends when we're not being mindful or we're taken out of um, access to being mindful, right? Like I was in a period of my life where I was trying to find meaning in something that was quite awful, right? And so when you're in, you know, whether you call it sense making or meaning making, that can take you out of the moment because you have to get in your own head to unpack. Mm -hmm. You know, so how, pardon me, if I can pause you there, please. is that the idea of post-traumatic growth where you're asking yourself, what am I supposed to learn from this tragic event? I, not necessarily in the book. That's where you do need to do that work for emotional I was asking about you personally. Yeah, that that's right. Yeah. But okay. I was stuck. So yeah. I wasn't doing that work. I wasn't creating okay. the emotional space to do it. And, well, and, and I think if you're grieving it's going to be doubly hard to do that work in the moment until that grief lifts a little bit. I would think. No, you're absolutely right. And what I was doing was not giving myself permission to grieve. Okay. I was trying to, you know, you know, hold it at arm's length. And yeah, deny and it. And like, you know, we'll get through this. You're such a man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, or like, you know, this isn't what your brother would want. You know, just all sorts of weird yeah. things. And so I think, you know, a lot of the message is about permission, you know, especially for men our age, right? I yeah. mean, they're just, oh yeah. and the headwinds are different. It's somewhat like when we talk about, you know, even though this is apples and oranges, like the complexity of obesity, right? When you see someone sort of prescribing one way, right? Well, obesity is a complex problem. So you kind of need to look at the toolbox and, you know, and yeah. then figure out what what's the tool you need for your specific problem. I think the lack of fun that so many men have in their lives is a complex problem. Some people it's because they're, you know, too easily addicted to technology. Like even, you know, like Slack notifications and email becomes addictive, right? So mm -hmm. you want to preserve time for leisure, but you know, you have these things that bring you back. Some people are stuck, you know, in a Puritan work ethic. I certainly mm -hmm. was. My parents lived in a publisher parish mindset. And so I think for me, a lot of my self-worth is derived from productivity, you know, I think some men are addicted to that feeling of importance and knowing what's expected of them and being valued and respected at work. And when they go home, they don't get the same experience. Yeah, 100%. I, agree. I think that that feeling of stress and, you know, just doing and achieving is highly addictive. Yeah, and it certainly is. And then fueled by the fact that we live in an individualistic society, yeah. right? Because it's clear that even high-performing individuals that live, you know, in uh, Eastern countries where the celebrations, but also the pain are dissipated throughout the group, right? Because you, you know, there's this right. kind of collective effervescence. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but for us, all the slings and arrows are aiming for our head specifically, right? And so, you know, we have these flashes of things that really go well and we tend to celebrate them ourselves and look for outside validation. But to your point, because you know, we're all kind of worried about ourselves. Sometimes that doesn't come. Well, and, and, the, and I think if I can jump in there, pardon me for yeah, interrupting. Please. I think part of that is that, you know, learning to go from external validation to internal validation. Cause I think we grow up getting off on that external validation, validated, being validated from the outside coming in. Oh, I got an A on this test or, Oh my gosh, he thinks I did a great job. And I think the more we can get to kind of self-awareness so we are familiar with our own values and how we feel, 
and then validate ourselves, for instance, because we're acting in accordance with our values, or we know we're trying to do the right thing, far better way to go in terms of building a... Well, putting circumstances in your life where you feel happiness more often. Yeah. And and I know, you know, from listening to your podcast, that's where you help men, you know, direct their sort of energy. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I have been trying to unpack the reasoning. I don't do this as much in the book because the book's more kind of, you know, tactical. But, you know, I fall back on the work of Alan Watts and others. You know, Mm -hmm. I think meritocracy does have an important, you know, part of this story, right? I mean, we're from you know, the onset of probably second grade, you know, everything is, how did you do? And how do you rank against, you know, your fellow man and woman? And so that's just an inherent part of the game that we're playing, especially in the Western world, right? Well, and I've heard also that those judgments are impossible to stop. Like we can't stop comparing ourselves against others. So we have to, it's kind of that first voice, second voice idea where the first voice is going to come, that drunk monkey mind is going to do what it's going to do. But you kind of work on how do I relate to that comparison once it comes up? Yeah. And another interesting construct that I've been introduced to as I share these ideas, you know, I forgot if we were rolling or not yet, but, you know, one of the funnest things is, you know, coalescing all of the ideas of smart people that have been looking at this for quite some time. Right. And so as I share this, a few folks have indicated to me that it's kind of a, interesting time too, if you're in middle age, right? Like uh, there's been several analogies shared with me and they all seem to sort of work. But I think, you know, up until let's just say middle age, whatever that means for you, to some degree, you want that meritocracy because, you know, for personal growth, that carrot helps you decide, you know, as long as you feel like you're heading in the right direction, it provides some motivation to do things that you might not want to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so it it helps bring you to that. But the metaphor that I like the best, I think it comes from a book that I haven't read yet, uh, but that was recommended to me called Pathfinder, is that you scale that first mountain and then you realize in middle age, there's a second mountain. And that second mountain, you get to play in reverse, right? Whether you want to call it writing your obituary instead of writing your resume or whatever framework works for you. Now you get to cement the goalpost, right? Because the goalpost, your whole life has been moving. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. Again, I prescribe to thinking that there's probably more blessing than curse, you know, mm-hmm. the first half of your life because it's helping you, you know, understand, you know, what your value is and keeps you motivated to kind of, you know, get to a place where you're going to have the resources where you can do the deeper work to understand what's really meaningful for you and whether or not you're going to have the economic engine to be of service to others. Um, But then when you get there, right, it's an amazing space. But so many of us here in the West, and I certainly think this is, you know, part of the story of the fun habit, we're so wound up by the time we get there that if you kind of take a deep breath, like a crazy wind-up toy, right? You're just like, yeah. you know, and directionless. And so that's where you need to step aside and be like, you know, let's cement this goalpost. What's meaningful for me? But I'll yeah. let you opine. But and, I, yeah, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. That sympathetic nervous system gets stuck in the on position, the stress response, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. And we we get addicted to it. We get a feeling of empowerment and... I think it's really hard for a lot of men that I talk to to learn how to turn it off. Um, like to, to learn how to do 
versus B is very challenging for a lot of people. And yet I think it's one of the keys. So um, let me ask you this though. And I chuckle because I'm throwing a huge rock at a glass house. So I'm on a sabbatical right now. Taking my own <laughs> advice. And good for you. I'm, I'm practicing taking more than one hour out of the day to lean into calm. And it's so uncomfortable because yeah. I've essentially had two jobs for the last 20 years, right? Between the wow. book and getting my PhD, it's always been in conjunction with a 40 hour a week job. Wow. And so I don't know how much longer I want to have two hour time blocks where I'm not doing anything. But like yeah. right now, it's a useful exercise because like that's a weird place to be where you can't be calm for a couple hours, right? Where your body to yeah. your point. You know, well, and, and I think we, you know, we spend most of our lives running away from ourselves, distracting ourselves from ourselves with, you know, with work or doing. And yeah. it, it really does not serve us at all in terms of self awareness and or happiness, however you want to define happiness, you know, life satisfaction. But let me ask you this why should we give a shit about fun? And playfulness, like I, you know, I'm a busy CEO. I don't got time for fun. What are you talking about? Like, I'm important. I do important shit. <laughs> Why should I have any interest in fun? Yeah. So, from a scientific standpoint, I think the easiest way to sort of explain it to your point, and you can stop <laughs> me and then regurgitate it. But it's it's clear that preserving that time where you're not caught up in productivity. Um, you know, let's call it leisure. You could call it, you know, active leisure if you want, is as important as sleep with regards to letting ourselves create the cognitive safe space to unpack all the things that happen within the week. And so the science that I like the most in this area is called the hedonic flexibility principle. And so what they found is that people that have ground themselves out, you know, grinded themselves to a nub are the ones that are looking for poor ways, poor ways to escape that discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe let's say you work, you know, from the time you get up 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. Those are the ones that tend to go out and have some drinks. You know, if they're a family person, they sit on the couch and think they're hanging out with their kids, but you know, are displacing that discomfort, you know, scrolling social media or doom scrolling the news or whatever it is. Yeah. And not because, present with the kids when they're with the kids or absolutely. their spouse. Yeah, because it's easy, right? And yeah. you, again, we call it passive leisure because it's you're not you're not with it. The folks that have good transition rituals are very deliberate about you know making time for their partners, you know, engaging in pro-social behavior, engaging in what we call active leisure. So thing, you know, hobbies. So it's not necessarily work, but things that light them up, you know, might be dance classes, might be you know, spiritual practice, whatever it means for you, but things outside of productivity, quote unquote, are the ones that show up the next day with a bigger and vitality to, to tackle the day. So ironically, they're having a lot more fun than the other group and they're more productive, right? If you're looking at productivity as just a quantitative measure, they're producing more too. But what I didn't say distinctly enough in the book, and, and now I wish I did, you know, if there's a version two, um, is that another nugget from that study, because I've now had time to talk to some of the professors, is those people also look for harder challenges. So that might be within active leisure. So they might be mountain climbers or kite surfers or whatever. Wow. But, but they also look for the harder challenges in their work. So they're the most innovative people. Because a lot of the times... Go ahead. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I was going to ask about was creativity, innovation, inspiration. Because I know that you know some of the 
greatest thinkers throughout the history of humankind often had some sort of a ritual where they would, you know, if they're trying to tackle a problem, they would take in all sorts of information around the issue. And then they would put it aside and do something like go for a walk in the garden or take a shower or take a nap. Because if we're trying to solve complex problems, the conscious mind isn't capable of doing that generally. It's got to be the unconscious mind. That's where inspiration comes from, in my opinion, default network, perhaps. But I mean, to to have that ritual of letting go of it and to stop thinking about it, and that's when the aha comes, seems to kind of factor into what you're saying. No, absolutely. And you probably already understand the science behind it. Like, is you know, when the amygdala is going, you tend to need to rely on your heuristics and an algorithm to get from point A to point B. Explain heuristics for people. Uh, they're essentially just instructions that, you know, sometimes they're biases, but they're a way to filter out external noise to not bring in all the information so that we can get to an answer quicker. Would you say heuristics are unconscious, automatic? Uh, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they... They're shortcuts to conscious thinking. I would, I'm just thinking about that out loud right now. It's no, I think you're, yeah, you're on. I mean, they're okay. essentially a way, the way it's just, uh, that, I, that it's been described to me, but it, it, you, you said it in a way that, that gels with that, you know, m- the definition that I would say is a way to filter out information. So you don't have to bring in system two t- thinking you need yeah, to okay. make, you need to make a decision quickly. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, whether that's through the subconscious or whether that's okay, I'm taking something at first blush, right. Then, um, and making a, a snap judgment, you know, cause I think you could still use your intellect, yeah. but no, the way you described cool. it is spot on. Um, and sometimes that trips us up, right. Certainly, you know, um, it, with regards to, uh, racism and things like that, it can get problematic, but it is helpful and heuristics are helpful. That's the reason that they exist from an evolutionary standpoint and algorithmic thinking is helpful, right? I mean, you know, anyone that geeks out on the the neuroscience knows like, you know, there are folks that have Alzheimer's who have kind of lost, you know, the ability to kind of, um, you know, use their uh, prefrontal cortex, but still can, you know, do a two hour walk from home because, you know, from church, because they did it their whole life. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so we know when we're under stress, these things that are inherent, whether they're in their, our subconscious or not, maybe that's debatable, but they're essentially pre-existing instructions to get us from point A to point B and don't require us to think outside the box. And when we free ourselves up from that stress by letting our hair down, for lack of a better (laughs) metaphor, then to your point, that's exactly it. And that is why innovative people have their aha moments in the shower, in a walk in nature, you know, in the weirdest places. The other way is staring at the wall or (laughs) staring out the window, right? That's how you activate the default network, which that was, that kind of cracked me up. I'll tell clients that like, yeah, you know, you can tap into greater creativity by just kind of (laughs) stupidly or blankly staring at the wall. I'm not sure they believe me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's anything to be able to slow down the mind, right? Often if we're stuck in a problem, you know, it's the same sort of my understanding. It's the same sort of phenomena, you know, when we remember someone's name, you know, like they're... It's I don't do the, that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember true? names. Yeah. No, no. But I bet when you'll remember it the next day, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That might happen. Because 
I, what we believe is that there are things going on in the background because, you know, if we believe that it's important, you know, there's ways to index information that might be stuck. Um, and so our brain's an interesting computer, right? But that's all to say that in short, and is that fun is as needed as sleep. It's clear, you know, that, um, again, there's different terms for it, you know, depending on how the study goes, but we need time for leisure. What do you, what do you think about, Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory, which, you know, kind of says that positive emotions, like, you know, what you feel when you have fun is that physiological reset button that, you know, it resets the physiology of negative, uncomfortable emotions, brings the heart rate down, brings the pulse rate down, stops the skin conductance, that kind of thing. Yeah. I give a tip of the hat to her in the book. She's amazing. Yeah. And so, um, certainly that's grounded in my opinions of how this works. And so, but also, you know, an important note with her work is she, she was one of the folks that overprescribed her work. Right. And, and perhaps some of it was bad statistics, but then also I think like so much of positive psychology was picked up, you know, by lay people that didn't completely understand it. And so she has, been a good steward to suggest that we also need negative emotions. Part of the broaden is that, you know, like myself in 2016, if you're not allowing yourself to actualize the real slings and arrows of life, then when something bad does happen, you're going to have a pretty shitty time. Yeah. And, and I think, I think when last time we talked, I brought up that book by, I think it's Tal Ben-Sahar and uh, Todd Cashton, I believe. It's The Upside of Your Dark Side, which was an interesting book to be written by two positive psychologists. And I think very appropriate and important in the sense of, to your point of this emotional flexibility idea, it, like I, it make, that makes me think of mindfulness, which is, you know, the core saying is allow whatever's arising to arise without judgment. And that without judgment part is, really difficult and takes years of practice. Um, and yet I think it's one of the most important skills we can begin to acquire. What's yeah. your thoughts? No, I mean, again, I don't think we were rolling the tape yet, but this is where I become fascinated of the difference between affect and emotion. Yeah, because, please go over that. So if you buy into this school of thought with regards to emotion, uh, which I do, is that we will have a physiological response to incoming stimuli, right? And so if it's fear, you know, our heart rate goes up, we start to sweat a little bit. Um, Adrenaline is, you know, uh, secreted so that, especially if you have a bias towards the fight response, well, I guess for both fight and flight, right? You're engaging um, better ability to, to use your muscles that those things are just going to happen. And there's probably more biological predisposition. There are probably people that are going to have stronger response to incoming stimuli. And that stuff is um, set by biology. And that if we looked at the human race globally, that those that type of phenomenon is going to be pretty well established with the commonality. Mm-hmm. The emotional response is so part how... Me, that's the affect. The physiological response is the affect. I just want to make it clear. For yeah, the, those are the things that we feel, right? Okay, and then the emotion is... Is our interpretation of how that feels. And so you'll hear folks that are, you know, good speaking coaches talk about, and I don't know if I hundredly buy into this, but like you can use, you can reframe what you feel as anxiety because your heart rate's going up to excitement, right? I, I've done that. It takes 
a few years to get it, that, but I do it before I, think, I speak. I'm, you know, s- similar to trying to get myself out of the malaise in 2016. Like I yeah. just started speaking and I'm like, this doesn't work. And I'm like, bro, you're going to like, fly. <laughs> <laughs> but let's tie that back into why mindfulness is so important, but you got to put in the work, right? I mean, yeah. to create the space between the interpretation of affect and emotion, no matter where you fall on the science and no one's going to really know that because they didn't hear our pre-conversation, right? But yeah. I think that's important work because then yeah. you can, even if you can't control your emotions, um, because I listened to your attachment episode and I, uh-huh. I do have anxious attachment. So a lot of times I will get in an anxious state and I feel like that's where I have done some pretty solid work. Cause I'll be like, okay, you know, you, you, your engine's revving up because this is how, you know, unfortunately it's interpreted physiologically, but yeah. you don't have to have that emotional response and I'll give myself some grace and it will dissipate because yeah. I can, you know, unpack the emotional and, component and I, of it. I like the reframe of anxiety where, you know, you get the heart rate going, you get the energy surge, you get, you know, some skin, you get some sweating, skin conductance. I like reframing it as, oh, okay, cool. This is my body giving me energy to prepare me for a challenge. And then I'll talk to my body and be like, hey, like, thanks for the energy. I appreciate it. I I acknowledge your effort. And oh, by the way, maybe a little bit too much for this challenge. So then you got to kind of work on bringing it down a little bit. Well, and I take the easy way out to be quite honest. And that's why I also (laughs) buy into, you know, what we just shared. I'll I'll take propranolol. And because the, that blocks the physiological response. Well, that's, that's dampening the heart rate, right? Right. And so, but again, because emotions so tied to affect, since I yep. dampen the affect, the emotion never happens. Yeah. And I'm able to just go out there very calm. Well, can I go back for a second to the mindfulness Please. idea? Because one of the biggest things I learned was about mindfulness was from um, Dan Goleman and, and Richie Davidson. And this was that there's a dose-related effect when it comes to mindfulness. So the more you practice, the more benefits you get. If you practice 20 minutes a day, five days a week, that's awesome. Most of the research is done on that. And yet if you go to you know, a three-day silent retreat, there's a bigger effect in terms of what you get in terms of benefits. But yeah. I think the other thing about mindfulness is you, know, you talked about kind of an awareness of that chain between affect and emotion. And the other extension of that is between affect, emotion, and behavior. Because I'm always trying to teach people like, look it's okay to feel angry. So you're going to have the affect there. Then you're going to have the interpretation, but then how you behave as a result of feeling angry, that's where the, the, you can disconnect those two rather than them just being fused together and you punching someone in the face because you're angry within a third of a second. Yeah. And with, with mindfulness or with practice and self-awareness, you can increase that third of a second to half a second, a second, five seconds, which gives you time to choose how you want to behave as a result of feeling angry. Yeah. There's either creating that space, right? Or, and I believe this is a little bit harder to do, but I've I've seen some folks, you changing the script, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or that, that the inherent heuristic, like this heuristic's broken. It's now led me astray three times, this bias needs to be corrected. Yeah. Right. So my snap judgment is going to be not to hit this person to get the hell out of that situation. Well, and I think like one of the other skills I'll teach around that is depersonalization, which is, you know, for those listening, a really fancy term for basically find any interpretation that you can 
other than the one where you take their behavior personally. So um, I remember I had a client that I had taught this to, and he went and got in an Uber and the Uber driver was just noticeably irritable, you know, short tempered, didn't want to talk, was just in a terrible mood. And he started, my client started to take it personally in the backseat. Like, what did I do to this fool? And then he was like, wait, wait, I talked to John about this. Hold on. Let me see what other interpretations I can come up with. And he was like, okay, so he just got in a fight with his wife. Um, the taxi union's putting heat on Uber drivers. Uh, his son just got arrested. Uh, he's hard up for finances. And as he played around with this concept, he could take it less personally and walked out having sympathy and empathy for the driver rather than anger towards. Yeah. No, I, think I think that's, that's a great well. practice. Yeah. Because so many of us want to close the loop, especially if we're in a state of discomfort, right? And again, you know, again, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I know this is grounded in, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. And yeah. once we have multiple uh, potential plot lines, for lack of a better word, you probably have a better word to describe it, then we can choose one of them, right? But I'm not, you know, we often talk about that when someone cuts us off, right? Like. Yeah. We just want to kill them. And then, but what happens if you now, you know, even if it's pretend like they're on their way because their wife is, you know, 10 centimeters dilated. Yeah. Like then you're like, oh my gosh, why don't I let them cut cut me off earlier? So yeah, I think those things are really helpful. And again, backed by a lot of proof, this isn't just conjecture. You know, it's clear that those scripts can trip us up or be quite helpful, you know, especially if we master them. It goes back to autonomy, right? We're now regaining control rather than, you know, letting the situations oh. control us. Okay. There's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, but one of the things that just crossed my mind. Um, so how far have you come? Cause I, my, I'm knowing your background, knowing your parents, my guess is you were to a very large extent over-identified with the thinker growing up. Oh, absolutely. And intelligence and rationality. How have you evolved or developed over the years, I guess I would say, away from that or to balance it more with emotion? Yeah, I mean, it's a, always going to be work in progress, right? Absolutely. I think. Yeah, so I'm on a journey for sure. Um, I was lucky to have a really good mindfulness coach. I think I name dropped him when we were you know, talking last time, Dr. Michael, Michael Gervais. He's okay. worked. Um, he made a name for himself by being the sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks. Right. That's right. Uh, worked with Russell Wilson, and I just was lucky enough to get early access to him. I'm not sure that's a, a feather in his cap right now. Yeah, that's right. No, but <laughs> he worked with him when he won the Super Bowl. I think. Oh, okay, he, fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. He maybe maybe Russell needs him again. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. Um, and so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So oh, the guy's just getting skewered right now. Oh, he's a terrible season. Anyway, anyway. Amazing. <laughs> Especially, you know, some aren't fair because they're attacking his religion, but they certainly. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I got it. Just <laughs> <laughs> the release now. I told you I, now that I don't run anymore, it's humorous. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it's vicious, man, and like you know, such, some of his teammates are, yeah, um, the indie folks, and that rightfully, you know, aren't really happy with him. So, um, yeah, where were we? Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, Michael gave me a your journey from so, intellect to emotion. Yeah, I think you know, even the book was still, you know, as it, it was a form of personal growth. But did I still want it to sell well? 
you know, even though I, you know, I, I advocate for not living an outcome focused life, I yep. think, you know, any component of good mental hygiene is being able to have both coexist. Right. And so I, it's still for me paying attention to that balance. Cause I still want to be a driven person now in the second half of my life, I want it to be more service oriented rather than serving me. Um, and I hope that's the sign of my emotional growth, you know, or at least a sign of maturity, if nothing else, but do I still want to make a, a positive impact and be able to measure that in some regard? Probably because I've always, you know, I have succumbed to the social norms of living in a meritocracy. Like, I don't want to lie to you. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's still, it's, I'm a work in progress for sure. And I don't have a problem with what you said at all. I mean, I, I appreciate it. I, I just think it's the reason I asked the question is I think there's so many men out there that, you know, we're socialized to over identify with the thinker, to be rational, to believe that we are only rational and intellectual, which is complete and utter bullshit. Um, because even like, you know, with goal pursuit, there's an emotional component to, to goal pursuit. You know, if we want to motivate ourselves towards a long-term goal, one of the best ways to do it is to envision how you will feel when that goal is accomplished. And then also I would argue figuring out ways to celebrate along the way, as long as they're not... A big one. Yeah. I mean, they can't be, um, for lack of a better word, habituated because then we know variable rewards are important. So they need to be different and varied, but... um, you know, making sure, you know, bring up the cliche because it plays, you do need to enjoy the journey. And so, I mean, kind of falling back on some of the insight from the book, I think too, you know, if you look at system one and system two design, it's clear that the long game requires some system one motivation reward, whatever. Explain system one and system two for the listeners. So system one is pleasurable. Like we're attracted to it. Doesn't require cognitive load. You know, we generally, um, you know, it's something that's quick impulse. And so when you look at it in through the lens of fun or pleasure, it's things that are immediately gratifying, right? And is that hedonism? No, because hedonism, and this is now I can explain this better because I was painted into a corner a couple of times. Yeah, hedonism is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right, it's an ethical construct. But hedonic tone is just a concept in emotional and behavioral science that means we're attracted to something and it's enjoyable, right? So that doesn't mean that it's an ethical construct by any stretch. It just suggests that that's a component of, you know, again, to use kind of a academic term, term, the hedonic treadmill, right? Like we're not meant to always be satiated. And so to say to strive to always be that way is as problematic as being overly concerned with happiness. But to say that we're not meant to live pleasurable lives, we know what that outcome is, right? I mean, it's why, you know, sometimes I describe it as we've been so directed to live a life of martyrdom, right? For some, you know, trophy at the end of the race, and it's clear that we're all falling off a cliff. You can just look at the stats. I mean, it's when the it, reason you do what you do, right? Yeah. Because so I, many I mean, men are unhappy. I've seen so many men that just work their ass off and have made, you know, make a lot of money, like and work for some huge corporations for 30, 40 years. And then they finally get to retirement. And then they discover six months later that they have stage four cancer. Well, and we know that that type of work too, right? Going back to the workplace wellness studies, I suggest if you're living that long, 
you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. The very pedestrian entry point is Bronnie Ware's work, right? I mean, she's talked to all these folks that have died and what they regret, right? So you yeah. can start there. But if you really want to dig into the science, that endless pursuit will make sure that at 65, you're not there to enjoy it. And so yeah. that becomes a really important mandate to take some time off the table. Again, then look at everything we've just talked about the last hour and you know, it's so unfair and it's this huge paradox. But if you actually are enjoying yourself, you're going to ha- actually have more at the end of the race anyways. You know, that and it's just so hard to get people there, which is unfortunate. When, and I, the reason I gave that example was to highlight your point that we have to learn to enjoy the journey along the way. And, and I think, you know, one of the things to do that, one of the ways to do that is to to get better at spotting simple pleasures you know, like going for a hike or looking at the trees or the flowers or appreciating nature or, you know, trying to connect with random people like the cashier at the grocery store and just see if you can get a smile out of them. Like all these little tiny positive emotions, if they accumulate over time, have a huge impact in my experience. Yeah, absolutely. That goes and the, back other, to- the other thing is, I think, just learning to pat yourself on the back for small steps in the right direction or behaving in accordance with your values. Yeah. And that's back to that act of mindfulness, right? Like, you know, because you're enjoying that moment, you are where your feet are. And, um, you know, and then you just start to seek that stuff out. What was initially a downward spiral and wearing you down to a nub. And then, you know, especially if you are a person of honor where you're essentially looking at like, how do I serve the people of my family? You know, once you kind of get out of that, that component of empathy, you start to see poor outcomes for the folks that you love as well, right? I mean, I've seen this from an, an empirical standpoint with physicians because they're one of the, you know, with regards to vocations, um, this was a worse year for them. 63% of physicians are reporting being burnt out. And so, I, you know, I'm kind of drawing a conclusion here, but from the data, we know that when a physician is burnt out, they're, the patient outcomes for those physicians drop off a cliff. Well, you can look at the same thing with regards to just yourself and your loved ones. You know, if you aren't enjoying at least some of the things you're doing, hopefully it's with the people you're with, but, you know, potentially, you know, creating transition rituals or finding the things that you enjoy, then over time, you aren't going to be there. You're not going to have the empathy that's required to have strong pro-social behavior. And slowly but surely, you're not even going to have the energy to do the work. And you won't have the presence. You won't even be with your loved ones when you're with them. Mike, do me a favor. Go back to um, that idea of transition rituals. Explain that a little bit, would you? Well, this is like more at the tactical level, but it's clear that... I like tactics. Yeah. Well, I think in modern work, um, it's, you know, I got this from Todd Herman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his, I don't work, know Todd. Uh-uh. he, um, I believe he made it a popular concept, but it comes from psychology because, uh, you know, psychologists use this as they're, you know, especially if they're dealing with, you know, severe patients and have this level of empathy, right. They kind of need to clear the palate so they can go in and be the best version of themselves for the next client, you know, instead of sort of holding, you know, this, sexual abuse or things like that. Could you imagine, you know, it's a a, uh, tool um, used in various vocations to kind of reset, but adults, you know, fathers, anybody can use this 
from transitioning from their work life into their home life or a, a, you know time that's meant to be outside of work. And so it can be as simple as just turning off your phone so you're not getting bombarded by Slack or work emails. It could be making sure that the identity that you have at work, because maybe you are hard driving and that's your person and there's no reason to you know remove that from your identity. But when you're with your wife and your kids, you're not meant to be a drill sergeant, right? You're meant to be a, a loving dad because that's what that's the person that should show up. Like, how do you create that distinction between like, okay, I'm leaving this behind and I'm now moving into this other? Because with both the transition to heuristic work and for people, yeah, I stole that from Daniel Pink, but this idea that we used to make widgets and now we're the widgets that make things, you know, for mm-hmm. folks like Google and Facebook. There is no goalpost. Knowledge work can go on and on and on. And if you don't create clear boundaries, right, that you could work until your head hits the pillow. And that's what a lot of us do, um, fueled on by the fact that with mobile phones, we're essentially accessible 24 hours, seven. And study after study suggests the people that do shut down don't, aren't less productive. In fact, most of them are more productive, right? Because for, and so you're asking what to do. Shut down your phone, or yeah. You know, One of the make, things I've suggested to yeah. executives in the past is, you know, be aware that you're switching roles. Like, I'm I'm a big fan of this idea of being able to shift gears to bring different parts of yourself to different contexts or situations. So, you're like your point if if you're a command and control leader, which I'm not a big fan of, but let's say you are, if you're command and control at work, that's not a good style to bring home to you know a young daughter and your spouse. And so, you want to have some sort of ritual to signify to yourself that you're switching roles, you're switching hats. And so I would suggest, you know, just stop at a park on the way home and just look at the, look at nature. And it doesn't have to be long, two or three minutes, take a few deep breaths, remind yourself, okay, I'm going from work mode to home mode. I'm now dad, I'm now husband, and then continue on your way. And you just feel the the shift in energy, the exhalation, and thus the relaxation which now you're bringing that and presence into your home instead of the stress and frustration, let's say, of the workplace. Yeah, that's a lot more sophisticated than... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but... (laughs) No, because the ones I think I highlight, there's uh, a colleague that literally just says family time on our calendar. So like, not only that, because so many people are kind of... um, Yeah, (laughs) I had a similar... (laughs) No, that's fine. Um, The... uh, you know, putting on your calendar time, family time, because it's, you know, it's an interesting artifact that your other colleagues can see, right? Like, oh, yeah. wow, their calendar is blocked for family time. And most people will abide. Um, for another dad, it was just flipping their ball cap backwards because that was, you know, they were, they were a frat boy and that was kind of, you know, that's yeah. when they, you know, and... When it's funny, I like the idea also, because this is kind of setting boundaries too. Like you're not going to allow work to infringe on your time with your family. Um, and I like or the even idea just that, yourself too, right? Yeah. Again, that's an important frame if you, you know, do want to be a great dad and, and I fall in that category. But again, all these principles we've talked about for the last hour are for the betterment of you too, even if yeah. there's... Oh, absolutely. And I think that's got to be number one on the list too, like self-care, self... I mean, exactly. You, you've got to have something to put in your tank to serve others. But yeah. the, what I was going to say is I love the idea that... If you're setting boundaries, the people that get the most angry about those boundaries are the people that need those boundaries the most or that you need those boundaries with the most. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think it's one of the first things, if anyone feels initial resistance to this, I just did an interview for Fatherly and the, the gentleman was an amazing interviewer, but he, I, I couldn't get him there, right? And so what I suggested, and again, borrowed this from clinical psychology, like let's lean in to this resistance. You know, like why wouldn't you want to have, you know, if you look at the frame of a week being 168 hours, why do you find it problematic that you would take two or three? So less than 5% for yourself, even if that is, you know, in the company of others, because you have to, you know, you feel obligated to be with your partner or your kids just to say like, Hey, I, this is something that I would like to do instead of it being, you know, I have to do. And you, I think for anyone that feels stuck, like sitting in that space, similar to how I said, I'm sitting in the space of discomfort, you know, not doing anything for an hour. Yeah. Like if you feel guilty about having fun two hours a week, then there's some deep work you need to do. The good news is once you get past that big boulder, the rest becomes pretty easy. You know, I mean, you start enjoying and, and yourself. And then it's fun and enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, that's the paradox. Yeah. You're more productive and now you're living a fun life. Like uh -huh. it's such an easy sell. You're enjoying life more. Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm I'm aware of time and I got to say, I, this was a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for coming aboard and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? No, I think we really got into it. I, you know, I knew this was going to be a lot of fun and, and it was... I think, you know, we hit on the main topics. If you do feel stuck, show yourself some grace, but do the work, right? Fun, especially the idea of being attracted to the things that you do. So not just acts of whimsy, but making sure that you're enjoying some of the aspects of your life, how important that is to showing up as the best version of yourself. And then don't tackle it as just another thing to do on your to-do list. Make sure that you're creating space, finding, you know, pockets of time, in your week that aren't working for you, you know, usually they are those passive leisure activities, you know, and it's as easy as looking at your Android or iPhone and seeing, you know, how much time you're spending on certain apps. Generally, yeah. that's a good place to start. So clear the space first before you start to integrate, you know, just kind of exploring things to do. So it doesn't, you know, become another form of toxic positivity where you're just, you know, creating a more busier life. Uh, that's, you know, and then just start having fun, enjoy yeah. the benefits. I love it. Well, and so again, the book is The Fun Habit. Go out, purchase it, read it, memorize it. And where can people reach you? And I'll have these in the show notes, but where would you like people to go if they want to find out more? Yeah, I write a lot of, of, about the science of fun on michaelrecord.com. So if you're not ready to buy the book, it's free to check me out there. So <laughs> Perfect. Um, and then you're on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn yeah. and, and some those... others like Substack and... Yeah, they're, and those are all accessible from the website. So, okay. And I'll have those links on in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I, this, I enjoyed the hell out of this and, and I really appreciate the work you're doing because I think it's really important. Likewise, Dr. John. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that is it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. If you liked, loved, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and share. And if you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. That's it for this episode. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 